Thanks for downloading the HistoryHub.ie podcast. In this episode, Professor Jonathan Phillips of Royal Holloway, University of London. He is the author of several books on the Crusades, including Holy Warriors, A Modern History of the Crusades, and The Second Crusade, Extending the Frontiers of Christendom. This episode is part one of a four-part Q&A session with Dr. Edward Coleman of the School of History and Archives, University College Dublin. Here, Professor Phillips responds to the question, why did Pope Urban II launch the First Crusade in 1095? There are many reasons why Urban II launched the First Crusade at Claremont. I think if you try and fix, uh, fix on one reason, it would be dangerous. He's got a lot of agendas running as the Pope in the late 11th century. He's got a lot of domestic agendas uh, running. He's involved in the investiture controversy, which... Uh, I'm not sure how much you're aware of that, is a, is a major dispute between the papacy and the German Empire over authority. And he's, he's on a pretty full-on collision course with the Emperor of Germany at that time, and the papacy has been for a couple of decades before. Excommunications are sort of being fired across the, across the bows, anti-popes are around. And I think you can see perhaps one part of, of Urban's agenda, and I'm not putting these in any hierarchy, I would caution you, um, would be to, to assert his authority over the, the Latin Christian world. He would undoubtedly benefit from uh, calling people to a cause and being seen to be the head of that cause. I think we also have to bear in mind what the Pope's job description is, uh, and his job description is really to look after the souls of, of his flock and the crusade is a way in which he will, in theory at least, improve their spiritual well-being because he is offering them the remission of all their sins. And, of course, in the medieval West, this concern with making good your sins, which you are frequently accumulating through your violence, through your misdeeds, greed, lust, envy, etc., and you do not want to roast in the fires of hell forever, this is, uh, by going on crusade, you will get remission of all your sins. And that is the new thing. And it's recognised as a novelty at the launch of the First Crusade. People have been offered limited remission of sins, and you can uh, go on pilgrimages to make good some of your sins, but the remission of all the sins that you have confessed is what's new about the First Crusade and is, is absolutely the attraction of it, one of the key attractions of it, one of the key attractions of it. For many of the participants and it's cast in the form of a pilgrimage to the holy sepulcher to, to christ's tomb it's therefore the ultimate pilgrimage which in some ways merits the ultimate reward of remission of all your sins or a very very high reward and so i think you've got to bear in mind that he's trying to improve the spiritual well-being the spiritual health inverted commas of his flock which let's face it needs it <laughs> it needs it because Western Europe is, as the chronicles tell us, uh, racked by endemic violence. Violence at a quite a local level. Um, uh, when you say the King of France, I suppose you, you imagine a rather grand figure, uh, a rather all-powerful figure. Well, in late 11th century France, his domain is about sort of 25 miles outside of Paris. And even within that, people can tell him to clear off. What are you going to do about it? Um, I'll ask you again. I, I'm being flippant, but his, his, his real power is, is pretty limited. There's a lack of centralised authority. And 
the church is beginning to try to channel violence in the 11th century, control it through the peace of God and the truce of God, which are movements which are attempting, as I say, to, to limit violence in certain places, certain periods of time. And you can see the Crusaders an extension of that in some respects as a way of, of channeling violence in a particular direction, away from Europe, towards something that they argue, that the papacy argues, is something that's morally good, i.e., in the language of Urban II, the cleansing of the holy places from Muslim control. So uh, a way of, of trying to limit violence in the West and directing these energies outwards. Um, incidentally, one of the um, senior churchmen, as he's travelling to Clermont, is mugged on the way, just to prove the point <laughs> that <laughs> the violence is directed at everybody. So I think he would have certainly been in favour of the First Crusade, this churchman, I'm afraid I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> Other reasons why Urban would have called the Crusade... We have a, a very sort of immediate stimulus in March 1095 at the Council of Piacenza. There's an appeal from Emperor Alexius I, the Emperor of Byzantium, asking for some Western knights to come and help him fight the Turks of Asia Minor. Again, by way of background, the Byzantine Empire had been hit very heavily by the, by the extremely powerful Seljuk Turks in the 1070s, a battle called Manzikert. They'd lost control of an awful lot of Asia Minor been driven back hundreds of miles westwards towards Constantinople and were in the process of trying to um, restore their authority in Asia Minor. Now you might say 24 years, 1071 to 1095 is a bit slow for a distress call to go out and you'd be right. The Greeks, the Byzantine Greeks had stabilised the position but there is some evidence that in, in the mid-1090s they were again feeling threatened and and wanted some Western help. This is something that they'd received before. On two or three occasions, they'd asked Western European knights to go and fight for them. And I think the Emperor Alexius was asking for another 300 well-trained, heavy knights to go out there and, and take on the Turks. As you know, he got rather more than that. Um, he was just acting in a, in a way that he had before. There's another element to that, which is that Pope Urban II, again, in his wish to improve the standing of the papacy, wanted to improve relations with Byzantium. And there'd been a schism between the Orthodox Church and the Latin Church in 1054, and Urban could see it was, again, to his advantage to try to heal that schism. And the Greeks are quite open to it at that time as well. So you can see uh, an authority agenda running there too. Uh, I apologise if this is um, not a simple answer and a rather extensive answer, but it is necessarily complex and all these things uh, do overlap and interrelate to some extent. And you have to really um, try to uh, assimilate them all in, in, in working out why Urban himself called that crusade. Just um, a couple of other points given his role as head of the church, he would like to return, this is uh, obviously a rather major point, return Jerusalem to Christian hands. It's, it's in the hands of the Muslims. Uh, this is a, a broad era of Christian expansion in Sicily, in Spain, and 
he would undoubtedly be delighted, as all of Latin Christendom will be in 1099, to, to remove it from Muslim power and return it to, to Christian hands. I mean, I think you have to distinguish between the aims of urban and the motives of the Crusaders themselves, and that's, that's important. They, they, why I think the first, one of the reasons why the First Crusade works is that it has a marriage between the interests of the church and the interests of the lay nobility. It's got something in it for both of them. And these are groups that are closely intertwined through the fact that various family members are often in religious institutions. And um, the aims of the First Crusade to recover the Holy City of Jerusalem, which given the general religiosity of the time, intense religiosity of the time, is going to be important to everybody. The offer of remission of sins that the church is putting as an attraction will undoubtedly interest secular knights. But also some people are going to be um, looking for material gain. And last night I was talking about Caffer of Genoa and the Genoese who seemed quite comfortable with the idea of making some money out of the crusade and celebrating that. <coughs> and the fact that you will also, in the course of the crusade, need to... I mean, crusading is hideously expensive. The overheads of running a crusade are horrific. And you will need to get an awful lot of booty and money in the course of it. That may not make you want to go in the first place, but you are undoubtedly going to have to acquire a lot of money along the way. The church is, is wary of greed and the sin of greed um, as a way of incurring God's displeasure to, to make you fail. But that's not to say that some secular individuals were more comfortable um, in assimilating those things. Some people, one of the other old chestnuts about the First Crusade, it was the landless younger, younger sons, sons riding off to get territory in the East. This is cobblers. It's an idea that needs to be put down. Um, the, the, the simple answer is that only two or three hundred knights stayed in the Holy Land after the First Crusade. Most of the rest of them came home. They'd had enough. If you've been on this expedition for three years, you really, you really want to get home afterwards. And I think you also look at the fact that many people mortgaged lands and borrowed money. If you're mortgaging land, you want to pay the stuff back, don't you? You want to get back to your family, your wife, your kids, your possessions. And so, yes, you do want to do this thing for, for Christendom, um, to recover Jerusalem for the sake of Christianity, but the majority of them were doing that, getting the spiritual reward, and then coming home. Okay, um, getting some territory does apply to a, a small number of them, undoubtedly. Bermond of Antioch is, is the most famous figure that you'll come across. Um, he takes hold of Antioch. Michael Raymond of Saint-Gilles, we also know about the Count of Toulouse. He was an older man. He sold up. He, he got... He, he turned his possessions into cash to go on this crusade, which looks like, OK, I'm burning my bridges, so to speak, and I'm going to try and make something of this. But most of the rest of them came home. And then you're into the, the territory of, of reinforcements, um, settlement, which is a whole different ballgame. But my point about motives I'd like to come back to is that to, to look for one single motive... And I think religion is the most important one. It is an intensely religious society and the wish to recover Jerusalem for Christianity and to get remission of your sins, I would put as top of your list. But I do not think that excludes other ones. Um, one further one I'd like to mention is honour. This is a society which um, knightly honour and standing and status is important. 
and an opportunity to enhance that honour, certainly when we come to later Crusades, anything after the First Crusade is going to be there. Um, for example, when the First Crusade succeeds, it produces a burst of historical writing, the like of which has never been seen before. Many, many people write up the success of the First Crusade across Europe. And the things they say, forget the heroes of old, you can forget the classical heroes, your Hector, your, your um, Achilles, all that kind of stuff, Alexander the Great, you don't need them. We've got our own heroes now, guys that you know. Godfrey of Bouillon, Baldwin of Boulogne, Bowman of Taranto, our people, your people, are heroes who've accomplished this remarkable, incredible feat of recovering Jerusalem. And that means that generation is forever um, admired and is then creating a hell of a problem for those that follow it because you've, you've got to live up to it. And so the, the chivalry is, is in its very, very, very early stages, late 11th century, but it's beginning to sort of gather pace and the, the crusade helps generate some pace within that. And so your honour is going to be important. And one final point which the historian John France made is, is patronage. Um, if, if I am uh, the Lord uh, and you are my, my squires and I say I want to go on crusade, you're going to say, good idea, sir. Wish I'd thought of it myself. Can't wait to come. <laughs> you have no choice at all. Um, but yes, it is this, this link between the church and the nobility that is so important in, in the sort of in the glue of, of crusading and, and why it succeeds. And I would just put that um, in another perspective. That's what the Muslim world in the late 11th century does not have. In the Muslim world, the division between the religious classes and the ruling classes, for want of a better phrase, is quite apparent. They don't seem to um, interact very well and respond to each other's calls. It's also a noble class, a ruling class that's incredibly divided, which is very fortunate for the First Crusade. If it had, the First Crusade had turned up ten years earlier, it would be a couple of obscure articles, I think, or maybe a bit more than that, and um, I would be out of a job. Um, but uh, it would... I, I strongly suspect it would not have got very far into Asia Minor. But it turned up in the late 1090s when the, when the Seljuk Turks had, had fragmented heavily and the Muslim Near East was pulling itself apart. And that was undoubtedly to its advantage. But overarching that political division is this lack of, of glue between the ruling classes and the religious classes that under later people that you're going to learn about, people like a man called Nur ad-Din, who you may not have come across, he did all the hard work for the one you have heard, Saladin. And then in the jihad, you have that uh, which, of course, is a fundamental part of the Islamic faith. And crusading is, is invented in 1095. Jihad is there. But it's, it's making an effective jihad by linking the interests and the motives of the noble classes and the religious classes that's so important.